In this episode, I'm joined by Kandro Dechen, Lineage Lama, alongside her husband and teaching partner, Nachang Rinpoche, of the Aroter Tantric Householder Tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. We learn about Kandro Dechen's upbringing and career in nursing, and how working with the sick and dying prepared her for her role as a spiritual teacher. We discuss Kandro Dechen's first meeting and subsequent courtship with the man who would later become both her teacher and husband. Nakchang Rinpoche. We learn about Kandradechen's practice in the hidden places of the Himalayas and her contact with great lamas such as Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche. Kandradechen also discusses power differentials between teacher and student, female teachers and the patriarchy, her love of Kumye physical practices, and much more. So without further ado, Kandradechen. Kandradechen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So I'm curious if you could say a little bit about your upbringing and how it was you became interested in Buddhism and things of that nature. Well, I had a fairly average childhood, I would say. Um, I don't really think it had anything to do with precipitating me into my life as it is now as a Buddhist practitioner. both my parents had um, quite a lot of religion when they were children. They had to go to church several times on Sunday. And um, that put them off. And they didn't, when they came to their own adult lives, they didn't see a need to continue that. And they didn't see a need to um, give it to my sister and I. So they didn't really project us. Um, into a religious life at all. I mean, I say us because my sister is also a committed Buddhist practitioner. She's three years older than me and we both came to it independently of each other, really. Um, I remember when I was a child, well, probably when I was about um, 12 or 13, having a period where I was fascinated with uh, churches, um, with the buildings and what went in what what went on inside them. And um, that led to me actually going to a church service on a Sunday with my mother, um, just one time, just to explore that really and to to see what it felt like. But it didn't didn't really lead to anything. Um, I expect it was my own projection. I didn't feel particularly like I belonged there. Um, they were very friendly, but I didn't feel a sense of home there. Um, So my landing up as a Buddhist came about entirely by accident. Um, I suppose my early, um, well, my adolescence and teenage into adulthood was concerned with studying. And my time was filled up really with riding horses and studying. And then when I went to university, I came to Cardiff and did a degree in nursing. Um, That was, uh, that really filled my time because um, it was one of those early nursing degrees. I think they're a lot better established now than they were. 
Um, and our time was very much filled with studying and also with the practical nature of nursing. So it wasn't, it was in a way not like an ordinary degree. It was, um, it was based in the medical school. So we were based with medical students and dental students. And, uh, but we spent a lot of time in practical work as well as studying. So my time was filled. So I think when I got my first job, there was a bit more space. And uh, I happened to see on a hospital notice board um, an advert for a Tai Chi class. So I thought, well, that sounds interesting. Uh, and I was ready to look for something other than studying and work then. So I joined that class and um, I think that's how I came into it because I met my first husband there who was a friend of Nakhchun Rinpoche. So that's how I came into his sort of social circle really. So that was my first contact. Um, we used to uh, have gatherings, obviously social gatherings, parties. And I was fascinated with um, my husband's friend, this man who just returned from 10 years in India studying and practicing. And um, I spoke to him a lot at parties. I would sort of corner him and um, ask him about his experiences. And uh, he then showed me his, all his slides, his photographs of which he had thousands. <laughs> And um, he was starting to teach then at that point. And I went on a, um, I think I went on the first retreat that he gave at the Lam Rim Buddhist Centre, which is in Raglan in Monmouthshire, um, not so far from here. And that was it. It, um, it was amazing, an amazing sort of, uh, revelation of sense making for me um, and from there it just went on so that was my that's how I sort of fell into it really this was the early 80s is that yes yeah 81 yeah, I, I came to Cardiff to start studying in um, 1978 when I was 18 yeah finished in um, 82, so it would have been <clears throat> around 82, 83 that I first met Nakhchung Rinpoche. And that was your first contact with Buddhism? You went from the Tai Chi class to... Yes, mm -hmm. yes it was, yeah. I never thought about um, looking for a religion or an alternative sort of religion um, since that time I mentioned in my teens when I was exploring the possibility of religion after that I kind of forgot about it. What do you think was it specifically about that first retreat and the scene in general that had that sense-making quality? Can you recall? Well I suppose it was um, the explanation of how we create our own problems. Um, you know, our constant relationship with this um, commentator that goes on in the back of your head constantly and the result of that. Um, and how our lives change. Um, life is not static and I suppose I'd 
gone through a fair amount of change during my degree. Um, I think I, I was quite a shy person when I arrived in Cardiff, all through my adolescence. Um, I was quite painfully shy, I would say. I think I inherited that from my mother. Um, but to become a nurse, you, you can't be shy. You, you have to step outside yourself. And so I had changed quite a lot in those four years of studying. Um, and I think that that was the, it was the sense making of that. And I enjoyed my career, you know. Um, and I think it was just the sense making of where I was at that point in my life. How long did you practice nursing for? Um, total of 12 years. In the end, I mean, I know that because I've just got my pension for those 12 years. <laughs> it seems ridiculous to get a pension for just 12 years of service. But mm. yes, I uh, started off in general nursing, in cardiology, um, moved into cardiac surgery and coronary care. I mean, I, I liked the technical aspects of um, nursing. Um, and I also liked the fact that in those high dependency areas of nursing, you could have a one-to-one -one relationship with a, a patient instead of being in charge of a group. So you had more time to spend with people um, who were facing you know, profound changes in their health. I became very interested in um, cardiac rehabilitation, actually. And um, then I... Uh, I think that was what led me then, after a few years, to go into health visiting, because I think I thought I could set up some sort of cardiac rehabilitation for people who'd had cardiac surgery or heart attack. Um, and uh, actually, that didn't work. Um, I, I went into health visiting. Um, I think I've always had this need to feel needed, and um, health visiting was probably the worst. <laughs> area of nursing to go into in the sense of um, you, there is this vague sense that you're um, keeping a watching eye on, on families um, and I found that difficult, I didn't enjoy it. Um, so then I had another idea about what I would do and that was to go into cancer nursing and to go into hospice care and I when I was a health visitor, I decided that what I wanted to do was work in the community as a symptom control nurse, a Macmillan nurse, um, a specialist nurse in palliative care. So then I set about arranging my career to do that. I mean, in those days, nursing was the sort of thing you could move around in a lot. You, there were a lot of choices. It wasn't very limited. You could, you could change jobs very easily in the 80s and 90s. I don't think it's the same now. I think things have closed down a lot more in terms of your options and, and how you, the ease with which you can move between jobs. So that's what I ended up as in my last seven years um, of nursing. I was a palliative care specialist nurse and I covered three um, Welsh valleys. Um, I mean, I was advising GPs and district nurses how um, about symptom control, um, of people who were being cared for at home, how to cope with side effects of treatment, um, and also counselling and teaching, um, teaching nurses particularly how to communicate um, 
with people at that stage in their lives. What are some of the important principles that you were teaching at that time to the nurses in terms of communication specifically? Because I think palliative care and uh, end of life situations are notoriously, um, people notoriously do the opposite of the right thing. <laughs> it's a little yeah. counterintuitive things I've heard. Yeah, yes, well, it, it's, um, it's painful to talk about it. So that's why people don't want to talk about it. Um, I think the principle, um, well, at least that was what I was taught. And um, we did this um, care of the dying course, <laughs> cold course. <laughs> um, I, I must have done that at some point when I was working in um, inpatient cancer care. And um, we were taught there the, um, the principle of going, talking with putting the, the client in charge, really, going where they wanted to go in terms of communication. So if they wanted to be completely open about the fact they were going to die and plan how that was going to be, plan their own way of managing their symptoms at the end, then that's where we would go. But it, if they didn't want to go there, if they weren't happy to go there, what you did was provide every single opportunity you could for them to go there if they felt able. So that was the basic principle. Um, it was entirely um, client-led. Uh, I, mean, I learned so much about people during you know, the whole of my nursing career. I think that's been so useful to me in my present position as teaching partner with because um, people have never ceased to fascinate me with how they um, can live in some people can live in a complete state of denial and that is all they can tolerate um, particularly in relation to bad news having bad news because I would accompany patients to their hospital appointments sometimes I'd meet them there go in so that I knew exactly what they'd been told by the doctor about their diagnosis and then I would discuss it with them afterwards and they had a completely different version of the event than I did so you can see how people's um, defense mechanisms came into play I think that you know that's helped me enormously um, with people in in a a Buddhist context, because I think a lot of us, that, I mean, the nature of duality is that we don't live with reality. We, we live with a version of reality that we can cope with and deal with and are comfortable with. So I, I think this principle that I learned when I was um, nursing these seriously ill people is something that, that's really helped me to understand why well, why I react the way I do and why people in general do. So I'm really grateful to have had that experience at this point. In the same way, there are different ways to communicate with people with their cancer diagnosis, depending on what they can handle talking about and which defense mechanisms are in operation. Do you also find yourself then adjusting the way you relate to or talk to your students, depending on what they can handle and which defense mechanisms are active and if so what what are some of those variations in the way you might approach things well yes um there is never any point in um 
telling someone about themselves if they're not in a position where they can hear it because that produces um, resentment and denial. And um, so you have to have a feel for how much someone can deal with be, um, hearing about themselves. Unless of course they're being unkind to someone. I think <laughs> we're not gonna beat about the bush about that. Um, we're just gonna say, you just have to stop that. that that's not on. Um, and you know, in a, in a sangha of roughly 200 people, you can get um, disagreements between people and people not getting on and not being able to function uh, with the end result of the good of the, of the project in mind, and yet people with their, their particular part in the project becomes their kingdom and they identify with it and they can't bear someone else to be, um, to step in who's perhaps more useful. So there's a fair amount of that that we have to deal with sometimes. Um, I guess the only way, the best way to teach is always to just to be a role model rather than, you can't always say it or teach it, you have to be it. Um, I think that's a much stronger way of teaching than, than words very often. That's interesting. How did your sister discover Buddhism and, and go down that road? You said it happened quite independently of you. Um, yes. Uh, well, well, my sister lives in America um, and has done all her adult life, actually. She did a student exchange when she was doing her degree in Brighton. She did a degree in psychology. And um, she... Um, she did this year's exchange, then she came back and finished her degree and um, went straight back out there. Um, so I'm not entirely, I mean, in, in those, when we were, when we were, when she was quite a young adult, we weren't very much in communication, but um, so because she doesn't live in this country and um, we didn't have that much communication in that period, my, um, I'm not quite sure how she came to it, but um, she uh, she went to the place in um, Massachusetts, Barry, Massachusetts, the Insight Meditation Center, huge center, and um, started going there regularly, and then helped out in, on the retreats there, and um, was part of the service for the nuns there when they were on retreat. So um, that's how she began. Um, but she goes to visit. Um, different lamas teachings when she's um, when she's got time she's working full-time and she also comes to our retreats now as well which is lovely um, so when we go over there which of course we're not able to travel at the moment she will come and join the apprentice retreats is that strange having your older sister in in your retreat well yeah i suppose it, you might think Yes, from the outside it might be, but it seems to be perfectly natural. Um, we're still sisters, and that very much um, pervades the atmosphere that we have between us, but um, we're very much closer now than we were when we were younger. Um, I guess that's because we have this shared interest. 
so it's it's really lovely having her there um, yeah it's great so in 81 at 21 you became involved in Nakchan Rinpoche's activities I suppose at that time it wasn't Aroter still or was it Aroter at that point well Sangnak Chodzong it's always been called um, um, Fortress of Secret Mantra um, and that was the name given to Nakchan Rinpoche by Jujan Rinpoche who initially um, suggested that he could um, develop this opportunity for people to practice in this way, in the Gurkha Changlo day way, the Nakpang Sangha. Um, so that was the name that, that was given to it then. Um, so it wasn't really, Arotel wasn't so apparent at that time, no. Um, and so what happened in those next 10 years? Suppose you became the Sangyum of Nakchan Rinpoche in 1992 and married in 1995. Mm. So what happened when you came in at 21, you're already married. Um, what happened in that next 11 years? What unfolded there? Oh, just more and more attending more and more retreats, really. Um, the Sangha got slightly bigger, but only in incrementally small numbers gradually in those 11 years. Um, it became um, a gradually more international Sangha as um, Rimshi started to travel to the USA, and both coasts on the East Coast and the West Coast. And he started to travel more in Europe as well. And I mean, there was just um, three of us really, three or four of us in the beginning, which um, by the time we, well, we got together, um, oh, I suppose it was maybe about, I'm thinking it could have been 80, 90, 100 perhaps by then. Um, but it, I mean, it was very odd how Rinpoche and I came to be together because, you know, for those 11 years, we, when we weren't, when I was his student, um, just like everyone else, we just had a, a normal student-teacher relationship. Um, I think the, the atmosphere when you're with your teacher is always heightened anyway. Um, it's, it's a kind of a, uh, a particular time, those, those times that you spend alone with your teacher in learning, um, th there's a communication that's going on between you that's not necessarily verbal as well, because you're, you're normally in sort of heightened state of, well, I suppose you're trying to be in a state of openness, aren't you? <laughs> um, <clears throat> I suppose gradually um, my marriage came to an end and we divorced um, and I think uh, once that came to an end, I suppose there was more openness on, on my part to realizing that um, well, I liked him in a different way. Um, and it was, it was, I suppose we had, <laughs> we had some odd moments where um, we used to go to um, Pennant Valley and have a camping retreat once a year. 
um, Shiva O'Brien's place with all these um, teepees. Um, we'd go there for a week and spend a retreat. And I just remembered some odd moments when um, it was obvious that there was something more between us from, from my point of view, when we would, um, when I arrived, I think I remember striding across the field because you had to walk a bit to get to the encampment from where you could park your car. Um, and there was something really odd about the way that I was walking towards Rimshay and he was coming from the other side of the field. We were walking towards each other and it was, <laughs> you know, you could, you could visualize this sort of romantic film of us meeting, coming together, walking across this field. Um, because Rimshay was in this position of all, um, of teacher to me, so he was in a position of power. It wasn't possible for him to really make a move. Um, so um, I suppose I perhaps realized this. And um, so I did then make the move on him by, um, I, he was just off, he was about to go off to America and, um, and he was in London staying overnight with one of the Sangha members before going to the airport the next morning. And um, I just had this feeling that I had to say something before he we went to America in case some, something else happened while he was in America and someone else made a move on him. <laughs> so I did this journey after my shift working. So I, I didn't get there till quite late. Drove all the way to London and said that I, I'm coming down and I've got something to ask you. So then we went for this walk and um, we walked all around London, um, some nearby London streets and we ended up on Primrose Hill. We walked into the park where Primrose Hill is, which is a very beautiful <laughs> part of London. And we sat down on the grass overlooking the, looking out across the city and that's when I actually said that um, you know I loved him uh, in a romantic way and <laughs> he very sweetly said that's the nicest thing that anyone's ever said to me <laughs> so it's lovely um, but I, I, I was aware that I had to make that statement um, and I think that you know, in, 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 he obviously said yes. I think he, he actually at, at that moment acknowledged that, oh, well, a relationship with you probably means children, having children. Because I guess I think he knew that I ultimately wanted to have children, although I hadn't had any up until then because I was too busy with my career, really. And, you know, perhaps I didn't really feel as if I was in a safe enough relationship to have children at that time, so. So that was the sort of the end of those 11 years when we finally got together. You mentioned the power differential between teacher and student. Mm. There is a, a notion that that power differential makes any relationship unviable, even if the move is made by the student to the teacher. Correlations are drawn to the therapist-client relationship or the doctor-patient relationship or the lawyer-client relationship, I suppose, mm -hmm. that um, particularly in America, I think this, is, this, is, uh, this notion is there, 
whereby it doesn't matter how much uh, the patient declares their interest in the GP, the GP can't go there or the, ther or the therapist you know, can't go there. Mm. Um, the idea being that the relationship, the structure, the power differential there makes the student incapable of making an informed decision about it. I think that's the, the sort of rationale, well, that's the rationale to some degree. What do you think of that notion given how things uh, came together between the two of you. And you've been married now for how many years or have you been together for how many years? I suppose we can do the math, can't we? Yes, well, you can do that. 20? You're good at maths, I'm not. 30 it's years? Our 25th wedding anniversary, I think. You, when was that? April the 6th. Oh, this year? Yes. 25 yeah. years, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yes, I, I entirely understand what you mean and where you're coming from. I think the first, if I just speak of my experience of the relationship, um, the first six months to a year were not easy for me in that I was, um, well, they weren't easy for, for either of us, really. I was projecting a sort of power onto the actual membership that, that really wasn't there. As soon as he, um, as soon as we began, entered this relationship he really did step back from instructing me in terms of telling me what to do um, he which you know in in some ways then you could say oh well you've lost your teacher then haven't you that's another thing but it, it I think the first six months to a year were quite difficult because I was projecting power onto something that wasn't there. I was seeing it in it, in everything. I can give you one just tiny example. We we went on holiday once to the um, one of the Outer Hebridean Islands. I can't remember the name of it now, but um, and we we were writing postcards home um, while we were on holiday, and I'd addressed my postcards um, with the address as I, as I normally write it, postcode and then county or whatever. Um, and he wrote on the bottom of my postcards, um, England or Wales, Great Britain. Um, and he finished off my addresses, which is just something he did as a whimsy. It was just a funny thing. But I, I remember having a huge reaction to that. Well, He's rubber stamped my addresses. He's written, he's, um, he's entered into, um, I saw it as a correction, which it wasn't at all. But that's just one example of, of what I projected onto him. Um, I think Rimshay stepped back entirely so that I wouldn't, I could um, learn to see that in myself what I was doing and, and after that it just became so much easier and um, I mean Ripshay is not a person who gives very many uh, direct instructions anyway I think he he's very careful not to give direct instruction to people if there's any chance that they will not carry out that instruction in other words break that root vowel um, which we 
you know, ordained practitioners live by the 14 root vows. And, and if you give someone an instruction, a direct instruction, it's you know, the Vajra command. And it's something you really need to carry out, unless there's a good reason for you not to be able to do it, which you can discuss with your Lama. But you really should carry out those Vajra instructions. So he's very careful not to give them. If there's any chance that you, that it will cause a problem in you not being able to keep that root vow. So, I mean, he's, he's always encouraged me in certain directions, certainly. Um, and it's up to me to find the teacher in that. I think he's always left that very much up to me to find my way. Um, I mean, he's always wanted me to teach more. Um, and it's taken me a very long time to start to, um, to go there, really. I'm not a person of um, many words. I mean, my, probably my dear father would have said, you haven't got the gift of the gab. Or, and, and actually to sit next to someone like Natural Shea, who can ooze the teachings, they just ooze out of it. <laughs> And it doesn't come as easily to me at all. And I think, well, I often think, well, why would people want to listen to me when he can put things so much better? But of course, they want to hear me speak. They want to hear a woman teach. Of course, I understand that. But um, so that's something he's always encouraged me with a lot. But he hasn't pushed me. He's always um, just drawn me on. And I guess that's the nature of our relationship. I mean, he is my teacher and I am his teacher. And we are, we are equal. We do say yes to each other. I mean, if I, if I think that he's doing something that's not a good idea, I tell him and he listens. And I can only really speak from that experience that the relationship is incredibly equal. This is very interesting indeed. Did it raise any eyebrows when it came out that you were together? Or actually, I'll say this. Was it from that moment on the on Primrose Hill, it was on? Or was there, was there an exploratory period? And also, when it did come out, did it raise any eyebrows? I remember when I was at your home, yourself and Nakchan Rinpoche told the story of how you were busted. Yes, by uh, Chimurgsen Rinpoche, yes. <laughs> Well, I wanted to keep it um, secret because I wanted to get used to the idea myself. I wanted us to be able to get used to it a bit before, because as a, as a Lama, he, he led a very public life in terms of the Sangha. I mean, he never kept anything secret. He just, his life was an open book to everybody. And that, um, that was very obvious before the time when we were together. Um, and um, I hadn't even thought about that when I became, well, made this declaration of love to him. Um, I hadn't thought, oh, well, my, my, my life's going to be like that in the future as well. So I suppose perhaps I did realize to some degree, and I did want to, us to be able to um, enjoy perhaps a month or so of time together without the the thought that people were watching us all the time. But anyway, that didn't happen because as, as you say, we did go to see 
Jimmerigs and Ribshe and um, Ribshe said, well, we're not actually telling people yet, but then by the time we departed and came back to Cardiff, everybody seemed to know and Jimmerigs and Ribshe had been on the phone doing what he, he did best. <laughs> exposing situations for what they were. Uh, he wouldn't see any need for any secrecy or why, do you, why, why would you need to do that? So I guess that's why he bust us open, as it were. And how was that received? Well, I'm not quite sure, actually, because nobody ever, I mean, they wouldn't, they wouldn't say anything to us. So uh, you'd have to ask the apprentices that. <laughs> I don't know whether people had perceived that something was happening, I really don't know. Mm -hmm. It's almost too long ago to remember, actually. So. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned Jimed uh, Rigzen Rinpoche uh, there. And around that time, you also had contact with other lamas of, of various kinds. I'm not sure if you'd been to uh, Nepal by that point and met Kunsang Dorje Rinpoche and Jomo Sampel Dechen. Had, had you met them yet? No, that came later. Yeah. So who else did you have contact with at that time? It was it was mainly Chimurukshe actually, because I hadn't I didn't meet um, the previous incarnation of Tujurimshe, um, Jigdral Yeshi Dorji Rimshe. I never met him, and I I didn't meet Dilka Kensa Rimshe. Um, quite early on in our relationship, in fact, I think it was. Yes, it must have been in about, yeah, 1996. I met Tatcha Um Met him on several occasions, travelled to California. I, in fact, I met him before 96, travelled to California with, with um, Rimshe, and we were teaching at Pema Asaling, his retreat centre, and I met him there. Um, and then he came to stay with us in our house here in Penarth. Not this one, but the previous one. Um, that was when Robert was a little baby, he was only four weeks old, and he came to give teachings on um, Dodgy Tipton Seven Line Song um, here in Cardiff. So it was probably mainly Tamarig Zunpche and him at first, and then later Kunzan Dodgy when we, um, I was, um, we were on a pilgrimage in it was, I think it was my first time in um, Nepal, although I had previously been to Northern India um, and uh, Ladakh with my first husband on my first pilgrimage. That was in the mid eighties sometime. Um, but um, we went to Nepal and we went out to Yanglisha at the invitation of um, Gyaltsen Rinpoche who was another Lama that we knew at the time, who had this retreat land. And he'd um, built some uh, a retreat center for people. And um, we were having lunch there with him and um, all the students that were with us. And he said, um, would you like to meet Kunzandorji Rimshe? And, um, we said, yes, or Rimshe said, yes, of course, but not knowing that that Kunzan Rimshe was the one with whom he had had contact for the past 13 years, who he'd had this incredibly close relationship with and then didn't see for 13 years. Um, because Kunzan was is a very common name. So 
it, it crossed his mind, could it be Quentin Williams? No, couldn't be. And then he took us upstairs and um, we went into his room and it was just amazing to be a witness to that reunion. It was so, so lovely. Um, he, he had Natural Shea come sit on his bed. Um, he kept holding his hand, rubbing his hand and also touching his beard and touching his cheek. It was, it was so moving to, to see that. And so this was the great Kunz and Audrey play that I'd heard so much about in terms of his wrathful demeanor, um, which is all in Wisdom Eccentrics. And um, I couldn't believe it was the same person. Well, I could because he was, he looked the same as the photograph on the front of Wisdom Eccentrics. And, um, he was certainly the most handsome of <laughs> Rimshay's teachers. I think Rimshay called him the Errol Flynn of the Dharma. <laughs> and yes, I could see it was the same person, but his um, demeanor was so different from what I had imagined. He was so kind, so nice, so gentle, so warm, so affectionate. Um, so it was, it was an amazing meeting. And after that, obviously, for the rest of his life, then we visited him regularly and maintained that wonderful contact, both with him and his wife, Joma Sankal, Dejan Rinpoche. Um, what was your experience of Kuntang Dodger Rinpoche and Joma Sankal, Dejan Rinpoche, personally? Um, well, we, we spent many hours sitting in his shrine room bedroom, um, just watching him be himself. Um, he was always extremely kind, uh, would answer endless questions um, about the Gurkha Changla day um, from our students and from ourselves. Um, um, he, he took a great interest in, in Robert, our son, actually, because I think Robert was probably about five or six when he, Kunsan Dorje gave him his name, Doodle Dorji, and he gave it to him on a piece of paper which was signed and sealed, which Robert thought this was amazing that he, he should have a new name and it should be written down on this um, piece of paper. And, and Robert would sit for hours in the room and you, you'd think any six-year-old boy would be completely bored with what was going on, but he was all just fascinated to sit there, just taking it all in. Um, I mean, we, we had to have a translator because, um, I mean, he had some words of English, but not many. Um, he, you know, they, John Sampel and Deirdre and he would laugh a lot together. Um, she would be coming in and out, bringing tea, biscuits, refilling our cups every time they became empty. Um, there was one occasion when um, Kunzan Dorje Rinpoche gave um, Ngakchan Rinpoche a, a Janak costume, which is the costume um, for the tantric dance of the black hat, it's known as Janak black hat. And um, that was an amazing thing to happen because it, it was like he was giving him the tool of the tantric master, really, the Garchan costume. It's a fantastic costume. It's this huge hat, black hat with a very wide rim. Um, 
flame on top. So it's almost like the hat is like a sculpture in itself. And this black costume with a tabard, beautiful. And Gunsan um, put it on himself, first of all. And um, he, it, it, I think it was important for us all to see him in the costume to have that sort of transmission of seeing him wearing it. And then he had Natramshe put it on. So he had all his assistants putting the hat on, dressing him up um, while everyone took photographs of the process. Um, so that was a wonderful occasion. And um, on that occasion, Joma Sampel gave me this um, uh, Katvanga, the tantric staff. So it was, it was like he was giving us some sort of tantric empowerment. Um, but really, we just hung out with him in his room for hours. We didn't, he didn't really give formal teachings. We would just chat and talk about things. How do you think Kunsang Dojo Rinpoche viewed Nakchan Rinpoche? Well, um, on that um, day of the reunion at, at Yanglish, uh, he kept saying, my friend, my friend, my friend, as he was touching his face and touching his hand. Um, I think he viewed him as his spiritual son. Um, because they spent this intimate time together and then didn't see each other for such a long time. And then afterwards, we came back several times to Kathmandu to see him whenever we could make a pilgrimage, we did. Um, and we would always arrive with all this, this entourage of students as well who were desperate to meet him. Having read the book and heard of these experiences, they, they just wanted to spend time with him. So yes, I think he just viewed him as a spiritual son. Um, in the West. I mean, Kunsthorshim, she didn't have very many students. Um, he would often, I think to, to study with him or to, to take teachings from him, you just had to be with him. He didn't give formal teaching. Um, so you just had to be prepared to um, sit there and spend time and absorb it because um, he was the king of the universe and that was seeing him in action as the king of the universe. You had to be prepared to just be there, spend time with him. Um, I think many people would, would, would visit him and they wouldn't really particularly know how to deal with that situation. They would want something that was a little bit more um, concrete, something they could understand more. Mm -hmm. They call that in show business, the hang. <laughs> do they? <laughs> no, they do actually. Do you have the hang? Yeah, Kenny Hang. Mm. Um, why do you think Kunten Dojo Rinpoche didn't have many students? Um, well, I think he used to put them off, probably. I don't think he wanted them. Uh, I mean, he did his best to put um, Nachimumshe off, given that they were both in this situation, because he'd received this letter from Dujimumshe, um, he couldn't send him away. So, and it didn't seem as if he could frighten him away by his um, 
wrathful shouting in the beginning. Um, so I think he, you know, he showed in that that he wasn't really that keen on having many people around. Um, in fact, Rimshaw's translator said, oh, he not have many, he doesn't have many students. You're so lucky to be able to receive this teaching. So I think he just carried on um, throughout his life in that way. Mm -hmm. He led very much a wandering life. He would wander from place to place with Jonathan Pell and they would um, stay in other people's houses, practice, go to caves, practice. So he, he was a wandering yogi. I think we probably saw him once his wandering days were finished <laughs> and he, he lived in, um, I mean, we met him at Yanglish or re-met him at Yanglish and then after that we always visited him actually in um, Boda where he had, um, he lived on the top floor of a house, mm -hmm. stayed there then. Can you use that term king of the universe, can you explain what you mean by that? Well. Um, I mean, I guess the king of the universe has, has um, universal power, and that's what he um, exuded. Of course, I think that's what we were we were looking for and perceiving because of our own idea of who he was, an emanation of Doji Trilla. Um, but that's what you perceived. Um, Um, yeah, I, I think it was just that amazing sense of power that, that you received from him. And he wasn't even trying, <laughs> you know, he was just um, acting in a very ordinary way. And yet there was this palpable sense of power there. Um, I think it, and it's almost the sense of potential power that um, he could bring into action if it were required with someone. Is that, do you think, derived from personal charisma or from his advanced Salung attainments? or from his personal realization? I don't know whether I can answer that question particularly. Um, no, I can't really say, honestly. Mm. I mean, I, I suppose if you know someone has accomplished a great deal in terms of their practice, then um, you're going to be much more open to perceiving that. Um, you're going to want to perceive it as well, aren't you? Sometimes people report in terms of as their practice unfolds and uh, their journey progresses, a kind of gradual shifts or changes or this sort of thing from a spiritual point of view. Other times people report watershed moments uh, where previously it was this way, after this, it's that way. I'm curious in terms of your own path over these decades of practicing have there been watershed moments and if so what have they been and what have been the key shifts transformations 
insights or uh, developments within that path? Um, I don't know that I really particularly want to discuss um, my personal practice as such. Um, it's not something that you really do. <laughs> I'd say probably the most important points for me have been when we've been on pilgrimage because um, being on pilgrimage puts you in a different sort of state um, because you're away from your everyday life circumstances and you're in this special place, a place where um, Pabazan Bar and Yeshit Sogil have walked, you know, um, that pilgrimage has been tremendously important to me um, over the years and the people that we've met. Um, if I think about the difference between my first pilgrimage, which really I, I was, a Buddhist and I was a student of Ngakshan Rinpoche then and I went to India um, for six weeks with my first husband. We, I took some unpaid leave from work so that we could go for a longer period of time and we, um, we went to Kashmir because you could go quite safely to Kashmir in those days and we stayed on a houseboat in Srinagar and then we planned our journey up north um, north and then down into Ladakh and we traveled by, uh, my first husband was quite keen on independent travel. So we did all of this ourselves, we, um, which is different from late, our later pilgrimages. Um, I mean, it had its moments. <laughs> we had all our cooking um, fuel stolen when we were on, because um, we, we went by lorry we didn't hire a jeep or anything. And there was a road that was really bumpy that took us as far as Cargill and then down into Ladakh. And we, we ended up with no cooking fuel because it was stolen when it, because it was on the top of the lorry when we were in the cab with the driver. Um, and we, ha we had hired these um, pony men to carry our baggage. Um, but we were very much a very small group. Uh, well, it was just he and I and these two pony men and, uh, so that was um, an entirely different pilgrimage from the later ones that I then did with Nakhtram Pache. Um, really, if I think about the difference between them, I felt more of a traveller, like an international traveller on the first pilgrimage, whereas I felt much more on latter pilgrimages as a practitioner. I don't think I actually felt like that the first time I went to India. Um, um, I think I've been to um, hidden lands. I mean, like we, I think some years ago we, we went to Yolmo. In fact, Dr. Mushi didn't come with me on that occasion. I went with a group of students, a small group of students to Yolmo, which is a hidden land. Um, it's not far from Kathmandu and it's, it's only um, about 20 miles north of Kathmandu. And, um, this idea of hidden land is, um, it's been, it's a place that's been almost hidden in terms of practice um, by Pabsambhava, Gurumshe and Yeshitsogil, almost like Telma is hidden, um, hidden teachings. And then these places are opened in terms of their potential for practice. Um, and also Bhutan is very much a hidden land. 
So these places for me have given me, I think what you're describing, those intense periods where practice has seemed a lot easier than the rest of the time. Um, so Yalma was a place like that. Um, we did a lot, awful lot of walking in Yalma. And the, the, I suppose the thing about pilgrimage is that um, they're not always easy, but that's almost the purpose of them, that, that they challenge you. They also take you to a place where Buddhist practice is normal and it doesn't, it's not special like it is when we live in this country. Being a Buddhist practitioner is not some, it's not a run of the mill thing to be. Whereas if you go to the East, it's quite normal. You can walk around with your tenger in your hand reciting mantra and nobody thinks anything of it. And it's very important for, I think us to feel that affirmation of, oh, this is normal. <laughs> people do this, lots of people do this. Um, so I think Yelmo is a very particular place like that where practice was very easy. Um, another place was um, where I had a, um, a felt a very strong connection was in Maratika. I went to the Maratika Caves, which, gosh, uh, um, in Himachal Pradesh. And uh, this was another occasion actually when Yachim couldn't come. He had to stay in the hotel because he was ill, quite ill on that pilgrimage. And um, we travelled in this very small aircraft and landed in this field. And then we had this trek up to the cave where we were staying. We managed to stay in the local monastery for a few days and visit the cave. And just that cave was amazing. It was huge, vast. Um, and it was the place where Mandarava and Pabasambhava practiced long life together. So that was our purpose in going there, was to practice long life practice there. And uh, <laughs> the funny thing was, it was just full of batshit. <laughs> it was just inches thick everywhere. And you could see the bats up above and they were skittering around. And we were sat there in our white skirts <laughs> in amongst the batshit practicing. It was, it was amazing, it was great. So I, I think that's as far as I could go in terms of, um, I think those have been my most important um, points of practice. And of course, you know, recently last year, well, a year ago now, this time last year, we were heading out to Bhutan. Um, that was my second visit to Bhutan. And uh, um, that is su just such a beautiful country. Um, and we met so many, um, so many lamas who were so positive about what we were doing as a sangha, um, a white-skirted, long-haired sangha. Who they were so welcoming, so appreciative, and the Bhutanese people are so appreciative of the fact that um, we're doing this practice in the West, and they they um, find that incredibly inspiring. So we find them inspiring, and they find us inspiring. So. It was um, a wonderful time. And um, I say that I mentioned earlier that I didn't meet the previous incarnation of Dujan Rinpoche, but I um, have now met the, the two new incarnations of Dujan Rinpoche, Sangye Pema Shepa Rinpoche and Tenzin Yeshidoji Rinpoche. So that, that, to meet those two was uh, amazing. They seem similar, given that they're incarnations of the same person when you met them. I don't know if they know each other, do they? Um, I don't think they have met. Um, 
no, I, I don't think they, they do seem that similar, although, I mean, I've only met them both briefly, so I wouldn't want to read too much into that. Um, one um, is, is a monk, and the other is um, an appa, um, so they um, have different, um, different ordinations from that point of view. Um, but really, I, from the brief meeting that I've had with both of them, I couldn't, I couldn't really say. Um, Are their recognitions contentious in the same way that the 17th Karmapa has two incarnations and sort of split the, split the uh, Karma Kagyu? No, not at all. Not at all, no. I, I think there is less politics involved here, far less politics. So I understand you don't want to talk about your personal practice and that side of things, and that's fine. So if this is in that category of, of uh, no-go topics, then just mention that's okay. But by the time you got together with Nakchan Rinpoche in 92, uh, and he stepped back from formally teaching you, giving you teachings and directions and so on and so forth. Um, no, I wouldn't say he stepped back formally. Um... I mean, he'd never given me an enormous number of instructions before that point, so um, it didn't change that markedly. I wouldn't want to give the impression that he stepped back from being the role of teacher because he didn't really, <laughs> if you understand me. He just didn't give you any direction in what sense then? What, what was the stepping back that you talked about then? I think he was, just became very careful. Um, was aware of that position now when we were um, having a relationship. Um, I mean, I've, <laughs> I forget which Lama it's who said no thrones in bed. I think it might be the Dalai Lama actually. Um, there are no thrones in bed. So I think he was very aware, aware of that. Um, and, and, and I think my behavior in those that period initially obviously forced him to step back a little. Um, I, it was almost like I had to play with the power a bit, power to control him in order that I wasn't controlled. I had to test that ground, if you like. How did you do that? Well, I suppose by reacting in the way that I did with the addresses. Um, I mean, if I, I can't remember other things that I, I reacted to. That was just one thing that I, particularly remember. Um, I mean, he's, a, he's quite a sensitive individual, so I think he, he picks things up without too, many, too much difficulty. And you mentioned that um, on Primrose Hill, and you made that declaration that he, he, he immediately said, well, this would mean children. If I we think were he said to... that mentally inside. Oh. Yes, he didn't say that. I don't think he said that verbally, yeah. I'm curious, having having had children and being in that sort of public, having that public uh, face, you mentioned that Nagra Rinpoche has a public life and then by default, you entered into that. Mm -hmm. And then presumably having children, there's some considerations there. I'm wondering what your considerations were in terms of how your children were going to relate to that side of things growing up in that context. Did you train them specifically in religious matters or were they shielded from the more public side 
how how is it done? Um, ooh, uh, well, they always came on retreats and do still come on. Well, Rachel still comes on retreats um, with us. We didn't really sit them down formally and give them teachings ever because um, I believe that children absorb in an organic way. Um, the only thing that we do every day is always sing seven line song before meals. So that's something that they obviously grew up with. And I think coming on retreats for them was such a pleasure because um, it was like having a huge family. <laughs> like all these, all this family of uncles and aunts. And of course, they're all very nice to them. So they they've had such a lot of fun on retreats um but i suppose in terms of yeah they came on public retreats as well um although now once i think once they started school it was always um it was more much more difficult then um because you can't keep up rooting them and from school and, and Rinpoche was traveling to America for six weeks twice a year and to Europe as well in between. And so I then stayed, took a back seat in terms of um, accompanying him and stayed at home and um, stayed with them. So they, I guess they haven't um, been exposed a lot publicly, but they're very much at the heart of our um, well, Rachel's very much at the heart of our sangha, and you know Robert was until his um, until his death in two thousand thirteen. Um, she comes. We have um, at the moment because of the pandemic, we have a monthly sop kolo, which is a feast offering. Um, we do that monthly on Zoom, and Rachel usually comes to that. Um, she has her own friends now. I mean, she's 17 now, so she has her own friends in the Sangha. And it, it's great for her because she's got people she can talk to who about things that she wouldn't necessarily want to talk to us about. So I, I think um, it, it's a wonderful way for children to grow up having this extended family. And, and in this day and age, when we are all in our nuclear families, it's something that I think they've had such a bonus from, um, having the opportunity to have all this exposure to all these different people, because our, our sangha is so varied in terms of um, the personalities of people and nationalities of people. And uh, um, I mean, when I was, 18, I hadn't traveled outside this country. I think I went into railing before I started my degree in Cardiff. That was my first <laughs> travels abroad. Um, whereas you know, Robert, um, he traveled to America when he was a month old, um, but they've been all over the place because of the nature of our work, um, which I think that they're very lucky to have been able to do that. Does Rachel have an interest in following in the family business, I suppose. <laughs> no, she, wants, she wants to be an artist. Oh. She wants to study art. What um, medium? Well, she's exploring everything at the moment. Um, she will, 
hopefully next year she'll go to Art Foundation where she'll be able to explore more widely. And um, that's what her plan is anyway. So uh, I guess you could say she's in the family business in terms of the sense of art that we have. Mm -hmm. um, I know that I think art is very important to her because she can see that it, um, I mean, Rimshay went to art college. He's always been talking about art from, I've got recordings of retreats that he gave back in the early eighties. And he was talking about art then and the importance of art in terms of Adriana, how it is um, the artistic branch as opposed to science and philosophy, which is more the sutric approach. Um, way of life so um, she's been exposed to so much of that that I it's obviously rubbed off on her and um, I, I guess as a, as a family we're musical we both play instruments and she plays instruments so um, and a lot of the sangha are artistic um, they produce um, amazing craft work um, and they're amazing musicians as well. So I think she's grown up in that enriched environment, which has been great, but I wouldn't say she's had formal Buddhist teaching other than having attended some teachings, and maybe leant against the wall and maybe gone to sleep a little bit, um, but sometimes comes up with questions that she wants answers to. So I guess I hope she'll, continue to have um, continued involvement in the Sangha, I think. She's very much in love. We have this retreat center now, Drala Jong, in um, just north of Carmarthen, and she's very much involved there with um, wanting to be involved in terms of the land, planning the land management and how we're going to really manage it in terms of um, promoting the wildlife there. And, um, you know, obviating the effects of climate change. And she's very much into all of that. And you yourself are quite an accomplished tanker painter. Well, actually, I wouldn't say I'm a, an accomplished tanker painter at all. No, um, I spend all of my time drawing now, producing line drawings. When I first started off whew, years ago, um, this was just before Robert was born, so it must have been about 95. Um, I did draw and paint then, because um, at that point we didn't have anyone else who was painting, so I thought, well, I'll have a go at that. Um, but there, there is, I mean, although the Arrow Tear is a small Terma tradition, there is a great deal of, a, of imagery and there are, um, so many yidams that I want to extract from Rimshe's mind and bring into being that it makes, because I live here with him and, and he, he um, directs how they are supposed to look, what implements they hold, what positions they're in. It makes kind of more sense for me to be producing all those images that then other people paint. So that, that's why my role has moved into producing the images. Um, and our small band of tank painters who we've trained um, paint the images. 
and I would say they are much better tanker painters than I was because really I probably didn't paint that many tankers um, and they're far better than I am. So um, Rimshay and I produce the images together. What I do is, um, well, he gives me a basic instruction of how they are to manifest. And I go look then away and look for references. Um, we've got a number of Tibetan art books. Um, I mean, there are these weighty tomes of Tibetan art reference books, um, all these Yidam's drawn in the Titze, the grid line system. Um, and we've got, I've got three main books that I use as references for those. We've acquired one recently, um, which is um, a work of, um, that was directed really by um, Sangha Gyatso, the uh, regent for the, the fifth Dalai Lama, uh, who was very much, uh, um, he produced a lot of, uh, directed a lot of tanker painters and produced this book um, of reference work and the images in there are fantastic. They're really, really, really lively. They've got beautiful hands, um, beautiful faces as well, the wrathful faces in particular. So I use that as my major reference work at the moment. Um, and then I get that on paper. Um, um, with the implements and then it goes over to Rimshe then he scans it and then he beautifies it in terms of um, thinning out the lines. Um, we can play around with the facial expressions because um, the, ex the facial expression is tremendously important because if you don't like the face you're not going to find it as a, as a source of inspiration and after all that's what these images are for, they are visualisation aids for um, practitioners. So if you don't find it inspiring, it's not going to help you <laughs> if it doesn't communicate with you. Um, um, and he all adds the odd implement in, in terms of Photoshop. He works in Photoshop. Um, so he probably spends almost as long on the image as I do. And then we have this end result, which can then be passed on to be painted or just published as a line drawing. That's how we produce them. Another area of particular interest for you has been Kumye. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what it is that of all the practices that are available, the whole menu of possibilities, why it was that Kumye in particular attracted your interest and attention? Well, I've always liked using my body, actually. Um, I've always been a physical person. Um, I've always liked keeping fit as well. I mean, I'm not that fit, but um, so I suppose to have an exercise system that you can both use for practice, for meditation practice, and use your body and keep fit is is the ideal combination. Because I'd rather be practicing kunye or or the other physical practices than going out for a run, say. So I think it's it's. It's just um, pragmatic, really. <laughs> um, I mean, the kumye is, is very interesting because it, it makes your, you use your body in um, completely unpatterned ways. 
because you'll often be rotating your nose in very tiny circles. You'll be keeping some of your limbs locked, like your arms, and yet everything else will be moving. Um, so they, they yeah, the word is disorientation. That's the word I want. So they, they actually disorientate you. Um, and that's actually the nature of the practice. So that, that's such a, an interesting um, physical experience, really. Does that disorientation effect still hold when you acquire the neuromuscular pattern? Um, yes, I think so, because it's not, um, it's not the normal way that one would use one's body. Um, and actually, when, when you've acquired that um, expertise, as it were, uh, it means that um, one can actually practice then instead of practicing the practice. Until you build that up, you can't really experience the effects or give yourself the opportunity to experience the effects. Oh, that's interesting. So when you've acquired the movement pattern, that doesn't diminish the shock value of the disorientation. How can that be the case? How can one be disoriented in a movement pattern that one has acquired in the body? Oh, gosh. <laughs> what a question. Um... It, because it's the effect on your energetic system, your talung system. So um, I'm not sure this is something that I can explain um, very easily. It's a shaking up of the, the energy that's traveling in the, the system of channels in our body um, that's then um, that's meeting or kind of smashing into uh, the nature of pattern. And that is what produces um, the profound effects that one um, then focuses on entirely. That, that becomes the focus of meditation in the meditation posture, which is this, I don't know how much you know about Kumye, but you perform the exercise and then you lie down in the meditation posture and your focus is on physical sensation, what is arising. So that's what's happening. That's the actual practice. So it's the shaking up of the Talung system by the nature of these exercises. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. My last question for you is, you mentioned before that people like to see a woman teach or like to see a woman speak. And I'm wondering, as a woman a practitioner and teacher of several decades, to what degree do you think that appreciation comes from the uh, student's ability to relate or the student's own filters? Uh, and to what extent do you think something unique can be brought from a woman's point of view or perspective? I'm wondering if you could speak speak more to that point that you only touched on earlier in the, in the interview. Well, actually, I don't think that... I kind of have a, a bit of a fundamental problem with seeing... Um, identi identifying a group of people, like women or men, and giving them 
applying characteristics to them which are either beneficial or not beneficial. Um, I prefer to see people as individuals. So I don't think that women as a group have anything um, above and beyond men as a group to give because I see them as a bunch of individuals. You see, the sphere that we're in here, Vajrayana, is, is Tantra. Um, so the method involves, um, is empty form. So that empty form comes in a myriad of uh, different forms. So you have multiplicity here. Um, so you have infinite numbers of methods, like infinite numbers of um, teachers, lamas, infinite numbers of symbols um, in terms of the awareness imagery. Um, and they speak individually to infinite numbers of people because transformation that we're talking about in Vajrayana is about communication. And it's about transformation and those symbols will only speak to I, I mean, a, a symbol is a method, and by virtue of being a method, it's limited in its applicability. So there'll be some women who um, will speak to some individuals and some men who speak to some individuals. So I'm not quite sure that I see that women have got something to offer that men haven't. Um, but I can see how in a patriarchal society, that's where I think um, women like to have women teachers um, as role models. Um, and I think that patriarchy has, has put us in the situation where women really like to have female teachers and men too. I mean, I, I can't speak for men because I am, I'm not a man, but uh, um, in actual fact, in terms of Tantra, women are teachers for men and men are teachers for women because the, um, the nature of teaching um, from the Tantric perspective incites one's own um, hidden, unmanifest quality, which for me, because I'm by virtue of being a woman, my unmanifest quality is a power quality, um, the realized um, male principle externally I'm the realized female principle so my teacher from a tantric perspective should should be a man to incite that and for men vice versa so when you're saying that your earlier comment about people like to see a woman teacher in that sense it's a symbol rather than a specific woman is that what you're trying to say well I'm, I'm not dismissing the fact that we we haven't had this wealth of um, female teachers. I mean, certainly they're not present in the East. Um, and I mean, another point here is that we are um, a female lineage. The lineage holders um, through, through the lineage, a lot of them are women. Um, so I guess one expects to see female teachers in this female lineage. What were you thinking of then when you said people like to see women teachers? 
you're talking about your own reluctance to teach that's that was the context in which that mm. comment arose that's the comment that i'm mm -hmm. kind of pointing to mm. no i think because um I suppose I'm speaking from, um, yeah, the fact that, uh, I mean, when I was, um, when I was in my teens, um, we still lived in um, very much a patriarchal society. I mean, we've come so far, haven't we, in, in my adult life. Um, I mean, my father, because he had two daughters, he didn't expect us to go to university. And I don't think he was unusual. I think he thought that we would end up as secretaries or we would work in shops. And I'm not quite sure that how unusual that was for men of his class to think at that time. Um, but my mother was much more um, encouraging of us educationally and she she really thought that we should go to university and study and get um, get a higher education um, so I think I'm speaking back to that time because um, that's been the experience of my life I mean it's so there's been so much change um, um, my sister was when we were growing up in the family which she was quite a strident political feminist i wasn't um she did all that bit for me <laughs> but i felt quite sorry for my poor father because he lived in this house with three women <laughs> um he didn't have much of a voice but uh you know in some ways that political feminism has um I think it's, I don't see, I feel sorry that, that um, men these days have had to put up with so much um, bashing from, from political feminists over the years. I mean, I, um, I feel it's not, we don't need to come at it from that point of view. We don't need to pull people down. Um, I mean, I love men. I think they're great. Uh, I, I, but I think as a result of the years of um, political feminism, a lot of men don't feel appreciated by women. Um, and I think there are a, a number of women who don't like men very much. And, and that is sad. But this sadness comes about because you you put people into groups of men and women rather than seeing them as individuals. So it's, it's always a problem to uh, this, this putting people into groups. It's, it's sort of primitive behavior. It's what, it's what herds of animals do in order to keep themselves safe, isn't it? They have to recognize um, the, the predators. They have, to, they have to be able to identify um, predators as a group in order to, to keep themselves safe. Now, we don't need to keep ourselves safe, really, at that level. And yet we continually 
go back to this primitive way of um, keeping ourselves safe. And it's really not necessary. I mean, one can live with insecurity. What do you mean one can live with insecurity? Well, that's the nature of practice. That's the end result of practice is being stable with whatever happens in your life. We're not, um, because situations come into being and go out of being. Um, people come and go, people live and die. They are born and they die. Um, we need to remain stable with what life throws at us. And by that, I don't mean that we're not sad when things like that happen, but we don't have to make, um, we don't have to complicate the sadness make it into a big project, a big hairy thing, that it doesn't have to be. You mentioned the word patriarchy. That word has many different meanings, I think, both politically, historically, and so on. It's been used in different ways. But some people do see this idea of a patriarchal society or system as being really quite an existential threat. Perhaps that drives some of the tribal the tribalism, this group behavior. Mm. When you use the word patriarchy, how, mm. do you, how do you use the word? How are you thinking of that concept when you use that? Well, just the fact that, that um, men have held the power. I mean, I don't think they do so much now at all, not compared to when I was young. Um, it's... it's, it's the, it's political power, financial power, power in all its um, ramifications. Um, I mean, I, I live in a, a, a sangha where that's not the case. So I'm really probably not that qualified to speak about this anyway, because I don't have a job that takes me out into the office or, or the hospital ward or so I'm not really um, the sangha that we have because of the practice is incredibly equal in fact I suppose we have more female teachers than than male ones really um, and the two genders have great respect from one another because they learn from each other. Um, so I can only really speak to what my own experience is, which has been sort of being part of the Sangha for 40 years. Um, it's probably given me <laughs> a somewhat unrealistic picture of the world. So I wouldn't, I would prefer not to comment on something I'm not part, well, it's not that I'm not part of the world, but I don't have that worst experience of the world because I'm I'm sheltered really from it. I think, you know, I would like I'd like everyone to have this experience of having being part of of something where the genders really truly respect each other for their both their similarities and their differences, because they're seen as individuals to be appreciated, not as you're a man and I'm a woman. Because I think there's far more commonality between the genders than there is difference, actually. Um, but it's so tempting 
to to split people uh, and talk about difference rather than um, similarity. I think if you look at a man's brain and a woman's brain, they'll look pretty much the same anatomically. Um, you know, I really have always wanted to undermine this um, idea of men are from Mars and women are from Venus. I think that was the most tremendously unhelpful book that was ever written in terms of men and women getting along with each other and being partners uh, and, and living with harmony and mutual respect. I think that's a great place to leave it. Kendra <laughs> Deshen, thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.